That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, imagine for a second a scenario. You're friends with someone who has access, access to something very exclusive. Uh, maybe their work means that they can get sports tickets or tours of places that most people, most members of the general public could never get into. Maybe you know someone who's a member at Kinlock Golf Club. Maybe you know someone who's close friends with somebody who's really powerful or famous or talented. On some level, you'd probably hope that your relationship with your friend means that you get access also, right? That they might throw you tickets in a suite for a playoff game, or they might bring you along on a behind-the-scenes tour, or get you on the course for 18 holes, or maybe an introduction to some person that you'd really love to meet. For me, there's a, a pastor friend of mine that I don't know very well, but we see each other once a year at a conference, uh, and we've gotten to be friendly over the years. He's very close with somebody who used to be in a really important role with the Philadelphia Eagles. So every year at this conference, I'd see my friend and he'd say, you're an Eagles fan, right? You know, I'm good buddies with this person. You know, I should call him. I should get him to invite you to come up and speak at chapel on some game day. It's really cool. You get to go into the locker room, meet with the players. You get to like teach a Bible study. And then you get to go on the field and, and watch the game from the suite. You know, if you ever sung, like, sung the song, like, When We All Get to Heaven, and you have some picture in your mind of what it is, like, for me, that, he's basically describing that for me, right? And I'm sure he's sincere in the moment, but he would never remember to follow up. And, and it wasn't like a kind of closeness where I could, like, ping him later and be like, hey, remember that thing you said? And so every year, I, he'd get my hopes up. Every year, I'd be disappointed. Every year, I'd see him, and he'd say, hey, you know, and I'd be like, don't mess with me, Okay. The, the, the guy that he's friends with has moved on to another team, and so now when I see him, he never says, hey, do you know I used, I know, and I'm like, just, just don't anymore. Well, in our passage for this morning from the New Testament letter of 1 John, we're going to see that the author of this letter tells the church that he has the most extraordinary access. He has the most extraordinary friend that you could imagine, the kind of person that you would give anything to be friends with. And John says that he loves nothing more in fact, his joy is wrapped up in introducing people to him. Before we dig into the passage that Caleb just read for us, let me take some time to set the scene and introduce the letter. So this is the first in what, Lord willing, will be a series of sermons in the New Testament letter of 1 John. And so let's just get our bearings so that we know what's going on. We call it 1 John because there are two other letters in the New Testament by the same author. We've creatively named those 2 John and 3 John. Uh, we call it 1 John 
because it's pretty well established that the author of this letter is the Apostle John. Now, you might notice as you go through the book, much like the book of Hebrews, the author doesn't actually identify himself. But there is good reason to conclude that the Apostle John, one of Jesus' inner circle, one of his 12 disciples, uh, the author of the Gospel of John, there's good reason to conclude that he's also the author of 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. So let me just give you three reasons why we believe John is the author of this book. First, it's the testimony of the church from very early on. So if you're familiar with names from church history like Irenaeus or Clement of Alexandria or Tertullian, these were Christian leaders from the, the second century AD. And in their writings and in their teachings, they assume that John wrote these letters. And that's important because they were in a position to know people who would have firsthand knowledge about who wrote the letter and why. Uh, the second reason we think that John wrote this letter uh, is because the author tells us, as we're going to see in our passage for this morning, that he was an intimate eyewitness of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. So that drastically narrows the pool of candidates. But John would certainly fit. And then finally, I think most convincingly, the author's style of writing, his subject choice, his choice of, uh, of vocabulary and syntax, it is very similar to the Gospel of John. So much so that if John didn't write this, someone was clearly copying his style. So as you go through this book, if you're studying certain words and where they appear at other times in the New Testament, uh, almost always, if there's a sort of a unique word in 1 John, the other place it appears in the New Testament will be in John's gospel. And so it seems extremely likely that it's the same author. So we're going to go forward in this series with the assumption that John the Apostle is the author. A church tradition holds that he was based in Ephesus, and so it's most likely that this book was written with the intent that it would circulate around the churches there in what we think of as modern-day Turkey. Now, I've been calling it a, a, a book, but it's a bit difficult to actually pin down the exact genre or form of 1 John. It, it reads um, a, a lot like a letter, but it doesn't actually have the sort of typical greetings and the, the typical sign-off that we expect to see in ancient letters. So if you remember, we've just finished studying 1 Thessalonians. Seth and Mike did a great job taking us through there. Paul, he has an introduction. He says, hey, it's Paul here. I'm writing to you all. And then at the end, he's got a conclusion, right, where he wraps everything up. This letter doesn't have that. You'll see that the author just jumps right in. It's got the feel of a letter, but sometimes it actually reads more like a sermon. So the genre is a bit difficult to, to pin down. Most likely, this was intended as a kind of letter sermon, as I said, that would circulate around to, to different churches uh, in a region. Uh, it's most likely that this was written after John wrote his gospel. Uh, it seems, uh, we'll, as we go along, we'll see, it seems that 1 John was written in part to correct some ways that his gospel was being misunderstood and misapplied. And so we normally date the composition of John's gospel around 80 to 85 AD. We have letters from the early church quoting 1 John as early as about 100 AD. So that gives us a window from maybe 85 AD to 100 AD for 1 John to be written. Most scholars think in order for it to have enough time to be widely circulated and quoted by other writers, it would have to have been written probably in the early 90s. So about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This would make John an elderly man. Now, in terms of why John wrote, uh, it seems that false teaching had infiltrated the church. So you see in chapter 2, verse 19, that there had been a split in the church, a secession of sorts. 
that some members of these churches had embraced false teachings and had gone out. Scholars refer to this faction as the secessionists. In chapter 2, verse 26, John talks about those who are trying to deceive you. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about false prophets. So it does seem that there was false teaching gaining a foothold in these congregations and that there had been some crisis that had involved an exodus of people who followed these false teachers. Now, we're not told much explicitly about what these false teachers were saying. What we have to do is employ what scholars call mirror reading. So when we talk about mirror reading, we mean looking at the text of a letter, something like 1 John or 1 Corinthians or Ephesians, and and kind of recreating the situation on the ground based on what we see there. So, for example, in 1 John, we see the apostle hammers over and over on certain points of doctrine. And so we can responsibly conclude that this was something that the false teachers were contradicting. That's why John's insisting on it so much. So when he insists over and over again in this letter that Jesus came in the flesh, it's likely that he's raising that issue not just because it's important generally, but because it's something that these false teachers were denying. When he says that anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar, it's reasonable to assume that these false teachers were claiming that very thing. So as we go along in 1 John, we'll engage inevitably in some sanctified speculation with, request to, with respect to what John's opponents were teaching. But the big picture is that 1 John is addressing these false teachers, addressing the way that they had destabilized the, the confidence and assurance of the church. So towards the end of the letter, John tells us the purpose of his writing in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants the church to know, to have confidence that they have eternal life in Christ. So with that said, let's look at our passage for this morning. What I'd like to do is simply look at five ideas that we see present in these four verses. We won't necessarily spend a ton of time on all these things, but I do think that the the wording of these verses is a bit confusing, and so it may be easiest just to pull out five truths that we see present in this text. I think if we understand these five ideas, uh, we'll see what, what John's getting at, and we'll see how we can have the same kind of relationship with God that John himself enjoyed. So first truth uh, that we see in these four verses is that Jesus is the word of life. If you see there in verses 1 and 2, John is talking about what he calls the life or the word of life. Immediately at the beginning of verse 2, he talks about the life that was made manifest. In the middle uh, of the verse, he says he's proclaiming to them eternal life in the middle of verse 2. Whatever it is that John is talking about, it's got something to do with life. So the end of verse 1, he calls, he says, concerning the word of life. Beginning of verse 2, he says, the life. The middle of verse 2, he says, eternal life. John wants to tell us something about life. And what becomes clear as we look more closely at what he's saying here is that this life is not a thing, but it's a person. Right? The life which John says was with the Father and was made manifest to us there in verse 2. 
right? We'll think about more about what it means that it was made manifest in a minute, right? But, but John is talking here about Jesus. He's talking about the one who was with the Father and who was made manifest through his incarnation, through taking on human flesh. When John talks about the life here or the word of life, he's not talking about an idea. He's talking about a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have any doubts about whether that's true, John makes it very clear later on in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now notice two things right here at the outset. The first thing to notice is that John assumes that God wants to give you life. Real life. Eternal life. Now sin wants to give you a life substitute. Sin tempts us to think that we can only find life in seizing the reins of our lives and living for ourselves. But John is reminding us here that God wants to give you his son so that you can have real life. God is the author and creator of life, the source of all life. Life was his idea. He alone knows what life is for and how to have a perfect life in all of its fullness and abundance. And friends, that's what God has undertaken in giving us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ true life. Not sad, flimsy substitutes, not the self-glory and success and comfort and entertainment and momentary pleasures that we're tempted to conclude are the best thing that we can hope for. No, we read here that, that he is life. And in giving us Christ, he wants to give us life. In the words of Jesus in John 10.10, life in abundance, true life found in knowing him. True life, using your gifts for their intended purpose. True life, lived out in relationships of love and self-giving and service to the joy of others. And true life into all eternity. Ultimately living in a world that's been rid of sin and sorrow. God wants to give you life. The second thing to notice here is that the Christian message is all about a person. So much, in fact, that John seems to almost confusingly conflate the message of life with Jesus himself. Here he calls Jesus both the life and the word of life. I think that's because the Christian proclamation is nothing less than a proclamation of Christ himself. You see, if you're not familiar with what Christianity is all about, at its heart, it is not a system of rules. Christianity is not primarily a code of conduct. It's not, at its essence, a list of things to do. It's not a, a vehicle for social change. It's not a political movement. The Christian message is the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you see, doesn't simply tell us how we can know God. He doesn't establish a way for us to find God. No, Jesus says that he is the way to God. He is life himself. Now, naturally, as we're born, as we live our lives, we, we don't have spiritual life. We are physically alive, albeit for a brief period of time. It's not to say we don't have moral principles and passions, but 
the Bible tells us that in and of ourselves, we do not have life. When it comes to God, we are dead, spiritually speaking, unresponsive, closed off, opposed. We don't love him the way that we should. We don't worship him the way that we should. We don't rejoice in him in the way we were created to. And so as a result, we are spiritually dead now and facing an eternity of spiritual death, far from God, cut off from any hope. But John tells us here, Jesus is the life. He is life himself. He doesn't just give life. He doesn't just have life. But he actually is life. To have him is to have true life. And so friends, this is the most important thing for every single person in this room. I don't need to know you to know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is true. Whether you are young or old, rich or poor, male or female, whether you're an upright, moral person, or whether you're hungover right now from something you did last night, the most important thing in your life is that you need a personal, life-giving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He is the life. And there is life to be found nowhere else but in him. By dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead in victory, he has made it possible for anyone to have eternal life if they will simply turn to him in faith. Friend, if you don't have that life, if you don't know Jesus in that way, he invites you to come to him today. If you have questions, if you want to talk more about what that means, to have life through Jesus, we'd be delighted. But friend, be forewarned. We don't have any advice for you. We don't have a plan that you can follow. All we have, and fortunately all you need, is a person. The word of life, the Lord Jesus. Okay, the second thing to see in our passage. This word of life existed eternally with the Father. You see that there in verse 2 where John tells us that this life is eternal. That means more than it extends into eternity future. It means that it extends also into an eternal, endless past. This word of life has a pre-existence that according to verse 2 was with the Father. He says in verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. From the very outset of the letter, John tells us that he wants to talk to us about something that was from the beginning. He said there in the very beginning of verse 1, that which was from the beginning. In chapter 2, he twice refers to Jesus as him who was from the beginning. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, the mention of the beginning might ring some bells for you. The very first words of the Bible in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 are, in fact, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you remember the way that John's gospel opens, it says there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, God, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So the picture here is that God has existed before the beginning of everything, before the creation of the world. And so John is at great pains to make sure that his readers, and friends, that includes us, understand that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has an eternal existence with the Father. This is why, as we read earlier in our service, Jesus himself could pray shortly before his crucifixion. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Christ, the one who is our life, is eternal. He is before time and outside of time. He is without beginning and will have no ending. He is not created but he is himself the one through whom everything has been created. Friends, that's the only way that he can be eternal life for us. Christ is at the beginning. He is the source. He is the fountain. He is the spring from which the river of life flows to us. This is why the Apostle Paul can tell us in the book of Ephesians that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, Christian, this might be something that you already knew. It might not strike you as a surprise or seem like a new piece of information. But I do wonder if our walk with the Lord is conducted in the full light of this truth. That God's love for you doesn't have its origin in anything in you. That it's not something that even has its origin in time. But that before all time, God the Father purposed to send God the Son to be your life, to live for you, to die for you, to rise from the dead for you. And from eternity, the Father and Son planned to send God the Holy Spirit to, to unite you to Christ by faith and to bring you to spiritual life. This wasn't a, this wasn't a recent idea. This, this idea of salvation, this idea of God sending his son so that we might have life, it wasn't, a, it wasn't God sort of zigging in response to our zag. No, John, John reminds us here that, that Jesus existed before the foundation of the world, that he has an eternal existence with his heavenly father. And so their love for us predates us. And so Christian, if you're afraid that you can by the dint of your sin and weakness and unfaithfulness and unloveliness, if you're worried that you can somehow frustrate or, or short-circuit this plan that's been going on since eternity past, you can relax. When you have Jesus, you have life in one who always has been and always will be. That brings us to our third truth to pull out of this passage, and that is that the word of life was manifest in the flesh. So far, we've been mostly dealing with ideas and concepts that might feel hard to pin down or to, to bring into our world, but now we're going to see that this is exactly what has happened. The word of life, the one who from the beginning was with the Father, he didn't stay far off in the realms of eternity, but he's come close. He's drawn near to us. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And so John here can refer to him in verse 1 as that which he says we have heard. 
and we've seen with our own eyes, and we've looked upon, and we've touched with our hands. There in verse 2, he says, we've seen it. In verse 3, he says, he is that which we have seen and heard. The point is clear. The, The word of life that was with the Father from all eternity has become someone we can touch and hear and see. This theme is going to come up repeatedly in 1 John. Again, if we employ this idea of a a mirror reading, it seems fairly certain that these false teachers that John is doing battle with were, were opposing this particular piece of doctrine. They were most likely denying the truth that Jesus had come in the flesh. Maybe they were saying that it only seemed that way, that Jesus was a a kind of spiritual apparition, a perfect soul without a real body. But John wants to be extremely clear at the very outset of his letter. There there are no tricks. There are no games here. Jesus was no ordinary man. That's true. He is the son of God in human flesh, born of a virgin. But John is reminding us here he is a real man. God's salvation, true life itself, entered into time and space and took on human flesh. John says you could touch him, you could hear him, you could see him. And what John's pointing out here is that that makes his testimony to Jesus credible. There in verse 2, he reminds us that the life was made manifest. Okay, Jesus has come in the flesh. And John says, we have seen it and testify to it. There in verse 3, again, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And again, brothers and sisters, this is an important reminder. If you're tempted to be skeptical about whether or not the things we read in the Bible are accurate and reliable, I just want to point out that the people writing these things were not speculating. John is not telling stories here. He is self-consciously attempting to put down a record of what actually happened. So if you're a follower of Christ, you need to be reminded your only certain access to the testimony and proclamation about the word of life is found in the scriptures. It's here that we have reliable testimony. We're not looking for God to speak to us primarily through dreams or or visions or intuitions. He has spoken to us through the word. Remember in John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father that we might believe through the testimony of those he was sending. Well, John is one of the ones that he's sending, and this is his testimony. And so this is how we're brought to believe. The best thing that we can do as a church is to stick close to the word of God. Not as a subject for academic debate, not as a way to settle arguments, but as the only place where we can find real life. The only place where we find Jesus, the one who was with the Father from before the beginning of the world and was manifest in human flesh. Okay, fourth truth in this passage, fourth out of five. Because Jesus, the word of life, is manifest in the flesh, and John has testified about it in his gospel account and in his letters, we, you and I, can enter into a life-giving, eternal, saving relationship with God. Look there in verse 3. John says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says there at the end of the verse that our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship, it's the Greek word koinonia. It has the sense of a personal relationship, oftentimes with an element of sort of a common task or, or a purpose. So John is making an extraordinary claim. He's saying that he has that kind of relationship. He has fellowship. We might say communion or even friendship with God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, John's not saying merely that he knows some things about God the Father. He's not saying he knows some things about God the Son that he'd be happy to pass on. Again, he's not offering a plan. He's not offering a method whereby you can gain deeper insights into the Father and Son. No, he's saying that he has been brought into communion, into fellowship, into common purpose, relationship with the Father and the Son. And it's hard to imagine a greater claim. John is saying that he knows God in this most personal way. Right? This way of knowing someone, it's not like the way you know a rock star by listening to their albums and, and watching interviews with them. It's not like you know someone from history by reading about them or doing research for yourself. No, this is an actual personal friendship. John's talking about knowing God the Father and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the way you know your best friend, the way you have a sense of connection with a teammate at the end of a championship season the way you might feel a common purpose with, with a business partner of, of many years working together. John says he has that kind of relationship with God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, this seems like something that the false teachers were also claiming, that they were actually the ones who had this kind of relationship with God. If you look even down into next week's passage, uh, you see in verse 6 that John says, if anyone claims to have fellowship with, with God while walking in the darkness, right? So he seems to, he seems to see that the, the false teachers are claiming to have this kind of relationship even though they're walking in the darkness. He, he's saying here, he wants his readers to understand that it's only in the apostolic proclamation of Christ, only in this true word of life that we can find real fellowship with God. He's trying to remind us that these false teachers are not a reliable guide into this kind of fellowship, that following their system wouldn't actually end up in this kind of relationship. And so John's saying we have fellowship with God, with the, the Father and his Son. And friends, John's not bragging here. He's not saying that he's so clever that he's figured something out. He, he's not offering himself as a guru or someone with special insight. He's simply reflecting what Jesus himself has said. So in John 15, verse 15, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. Brothers and sisters, this is why the word of life was manifest. This is why the eternal second person of the Trinity took on human flesh, that by his crucifixion and resurrection, he might take us from death to life and from enmity with God into friendship with him. This is not something that John has figured out. It's something that Jesus accomplished 
in space and time. And now we can have fellowship with God. Did you see that there in verse 3? This isn't something reserved just for a few, for spiritual elites. It's not something that John and the other eyewitnesses to Jesus' life uh, have exclusive access to. No, John says that he's proclaimed all of this to, to them so that you too might have fellowship with us. Friends, this is what makes the good news about Jesus such good news. Right? It wouldn't be a cause for celebration if there was this amazing gift, eternal life in fellowship with the God who made us, who is the source of all beauty and joy and blessing. It wouldn't be good news if this gift exists, but you and I don't get access to it. I don't know about you. Maybe you're a bigger person than I am, but I... I take very little joy in people describing the beauty of places I'll never go to. Right? If you eat a magnificent meal prepared by a world-class chef, or, or you hear the most incredible performance of music, or, or you have tickets to the most dramatic and important win in your favorite team's history, well, look, as your friend, I can be happy for you, right? But it's not really good news for me personally. I wasn't there. I didn't get that experience. And so how awful would it be if there was this most amazing gift, fellowship, communion, friendship with God, but it was only available to a select group of people. But John's saying the reason he was commissioned by Jesus to proclaim this message is so that people like you and like me can have a seat at the chef's table so that we can be there, that we don't miss the performance, so that we can get swept up with him in the championship celebration. Christian Jesus, the life who was with the Father from all eternity, lived for you and died for you and rose for you so that you could have a relationship with him. And he sent this word, this proclamation, this testimony of John so that you would believe it and trust in him alone and join in. And that brings us to our fifth and final truth to see in this passage, and that is that John is writing for the purpose of his own joy. Look there in verse 4. We read this. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, that might seem strange, that John would tell us that he's writing for selfish purposes, that he's really interested in completing his own joy here, but he's not being self-centered. Instead, this is a picture of just how much he loves these churches. He cares so much about their spiritual well-being that he really can't feel a full measure of joy until he knows that they're spiritually secure. I think any parent knows that feeling, right? There is more than a little truth in that old saying that a, a parent is only as happy as their least happy child, right? If your child is in rebellion or making bad choices or heading in an unhelpful direction, there is a piece of you that is never quite at rest. And I think that's what John's going through. His joy can't be settled until he knows that these brothers and sisters have rejected the soul-destroying doctrines of these secessionist teachers, he wants his joy to be complete by, by seeing them embrace fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. I think that's the tone in which John offers this letter to us. 
I think Mike Jones did an excellent job a few weeks ago helping us meditate on this truth from Paul's letter to the church uh, at Thessalonica, where he talks about how the church there is his crown and his joy. Right? It's the same idea here in verse 4. John's joy can't be complete until these first century believers embrace the word of life. Okay, he doesn't say exactly why that is, but it's not too hard to figure out. John is aware all throughout this letter that he is an ambassador. He is a herald. He is a messenger. He is representing the interests and agenda of his friend, the Lord Jesus. And as amazing as it might sound, as, as reluctant as we might be to believe it if God himself hadn't said it in his word... What we see in Scripture is that you are Jesus' joy. That he suffered and died in order to bring you into fellowship with him. Because being your friend brings him joy. Hebrews 12.3 tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Why did Jesus die? There are a host of ways we could answer that question, but the author of Hebrews wants us to know that at least in part, he died on the cross because the joy of saving you was greater than the pain and shame of the cross. <clears throat> Friends, the picture here is that God hasn't just made salvation available in Jesus, but he has declared it across the world. And so the joy isn't full. The circuit hasn't been completed until you've been brought into an experience of the kindness and riches and, and lavish fellowship of your heavenly father. Right? John is like a friend with access to the best tickets. Right? John is the friend who can get you onto Augusta National for 18 holes. Right? He can make the introduction to a person who could make your career. He can get you into the locker room, into the room where it happens. You might feel weird taking advantage of the connection, but what he's saying here is that his joy isn't complete until you've experienced everything that you've been given. John's trying to tell you that this is how much God loves you, that God the Father sent God the Son so that you could have fellowship with them. Church, there really aren't any commands in this passage. John doesn't really tell us what to do with this information. At this point, he's not aiming at a particular moral reformation or change in behavior. But there are plenty of implications. It seems clear that the response being driven at here is to embrace this message about Jesus, this eternal life, so that we might be brought into fellowship with all who have fellowship with the Father and the Son. If we do and if we will, it's going to naturally impact our lives. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, fellowship with God means walking away from the darkness and in the light. Having this amazing gift will impact the way you think about whatever it is that you're going on, that's going on in your life. Right? If you understand what it means to have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, it will affect how you think about the things that you lack in this life. So if you're struggling financially... Or if deep down you wish you just looked different, or that you had more or better friends, if you wish you could go back and undo a, a catastrophic decision, or you feel like you've missed the boat with your career, 
Friend, in the end, if you have Jesus, if you have eternal life, if you've been brought into the fellowship of people who have been made his friends, you can be certain that in the end, you're not missing out on anything. Whatever it is that's gone wrong in your life, I promise you it's not as bad as missing out on this fellowship with God for all eternity. And whatever joy and happiness you might be able to pull together in your life, I can promise you it doesn't compare to the joy of this kind of relationship with God now and for all eternity. And so it's that truth that we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table together. We come to the table to have communion. It's a celebration of this fellowship that John's talking about, this friendship that we have with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. We come together as a church family, as a sign that we've been brought to Jesus. We've been brought to each other by his broken body and shed blood. And so let's come now to do that. Let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together and let's celebrate the joy of, of knowing Jesus. But first, let's pray.